Welcome everyone to the Phenomenosophy Discussions. Tonight's topic, the death of science. We will discuss the death of science as a method, also known as positivism, and its usurpation, usurpation by the science as an institution, the infusion of wokeness and critical theories with this institution, and the threats to civilization, culture, and life that this institution poses on us all. The institution of the science is becoming like a religion or a religion, uh, scientism, if you will, um, with a priesthood that ordains the canonical, canonically accepted truths and systemically oppresses dissenting views, opinions, and facts. So first, I'll start off by making a distinction between science as a method and science as a as a uh, institution or the science as an institution. Um, and then of course, at any point um, where this is a discussion, so we're open to any questions, any, uh, any debate, any challenges, anything along the way, uh, feel free to chime in at any time and we'll open it up at the end for an open discussion as well. And we'll go from there. Okay, so science as a method is, you know, it's uh, based in reason, principles, and rational thought. And we've discussed in actually just a few discussions ago um, the nature of truth and how science is one tool that we use to get ourselves closer to the truth. Um, and if you go back into that discussion, we talk about, you know, there being an absolute truth and how because of the nature of interpretation, science doesn't actually establish truths as much as it establishes facts and things like that. We, we often attribute you know, laws of nature and things like that, but it also is limited by our own interpretation and understanding, hence the evolution of like gravitational theories and stuff like that. I've been using as an example, um, Einstein versus Newton on uh, gravitational theories and how we can look at Newton's uh, equations for gravity and they test out, you know, so during experimentation, which is part of the scientific method, we can establish that, yeah, this formula works out. And then Einstein comes along many, many years later and comes up with a completely new equation and it gets us even closer to the truth. So science is one of those tools that gets us closer to the truth. The method is under attack in that it is, it has become uh, convoluted with, especially within culture, you know, within media, within these institutions of science, where they will actually ignore people who are conducting the scientific method, and there are elements in place that actually restrict the the any scientific. Anything that comes out of the scientific method that is in contradiction to a narrative, okay? So first we look at the, the method itself, which starts off with, it's, it's a very simple process. And it starts off with either an observation or a question, right? And from there, you will either do research, unless it's maybe a, a, an observation or a question, which within which you have a specialty, but the scientific method itself is not limited 
to ordained priests, meaning you don't have to even be a quote unquote scientist to employ the scientific method. Any, anyone can employ the scientific method. In fact, the scientific method itself, which comes out of the enlightenment is now hundreds of years old, was in my opinion, much more effective at advancing humanity in its earlier days because there were no institutions to hold it back. And many of the people who advanced such things had no, didn't necessarily have any formal training as quote-unquote scientists, but employed the method in order to discover truths about the nature of reality. After that, you establish a hypothesis or you make predictions based on your observation or question or based on the research you've done. And from that hypothesis or prediction, you move into experimentation. You may perform one experiment. You may perform a multitude of experiments. Multiple scientists may perform or multiple people may perform multiple experiments along this same hypothesis. The experiments themselves will generate data. Okay. And then you analyze the data. If there are multiple experiments, you will do something known as a meta-analysis on, on several data sets from several different experiments. And from this analysis of data, you will come to conclusions. Uh, and these conclusions will either uh, prove your predictions and hypotheses, or they won't. And if the conclusions don't coincide with your hypothesis or predictions, you can start the process again. New observation, right? Because these conclusions can now become the observations for a new hypothesis. And you can move forward from there. So it's a, it's a simple process. And, it and it's served us well throughout the history of mankind, especially since the Enlightenment. Now we have over the last, let's say, let's say beginning in the 40s, late, late 40s, early 50s, when you have not only institutions of science emerging, but you also have uh, methodologies that are not necessarily part of the method, the scientific method itself, but are now being in, and again, I don't, I'm not asserting that these methodologies, these additional methodologies were necessarily devised in order to suppress the scientific method, but they, we could see now that they are being used in that way. Um, institutions we now have, such as the CDC, the NIH, the NSF, the WHO, the AMA, the FDA, uh, the ADA, <laughs> these are all institutions now of science. Okay, and these methodologies, these additional methodologies have become methods of control of science. So for instance, uh, kind of what, we, what many scientists considered a, goal, a, a, goal, a gold standard of, the, of an additional control on the scientific method is like randomized controlled trials, peer review, um, which is done through scientific journals. These controls can be beneficial and they can be a hindrance to the advancement of knowledge. So for instance, 
um, in the new, in the, and the reason why I feel that this is a timely topic is with the pandemic as we've been experiencing it and the science and the high priest of the science, Mr. Tony Fauci, we're experiencing these, these tools actually using being used to diminish or to obfuscate the actual scientific method that people are employing to come up with ready solutions, cheap solutions, reasonable, rational solutions to this supposed epidemic or pandemic, right? And like, for instance, uh, the news that's been coming out of late regarding the various therapies for COVID, right? You have um, these cheap repurposed drugs, such as, you know, we heard early on about hydroxychloroquine. We've been hearing about ivermectin, um, fluvoxamine thing, or uh, I think I said that wrong. Fumoxacin, fumoxacin, uh, whatever it is. Um, but these, what is it? Fumoxacin. Okay. There you go. <laughs> and, uh, and these are therapies that are being, that could be employed and that the scientific method has actually been employed to establish that they are effective, highly effective, much more effective than the various vaccines and things like that that are being released. So you have these processes that, that are these people that are, uh, that are, pursuing science through the method. However, their findings are being obstructed and it's these institutions that are obstructing them. So for instance, uh, like I said, the, the randomized controlled trial, which is an effective method, especially for something like a new technology that's emerging. A randomized controlled trial can tell you a lot about let's say a new drug or a, a, new, uh, a new way of approaching a problem, uh, specifically in the, in the realm of medicine and therapies and things like that, because a randomized controlled trial can, on a large scale, can tell you about th uh, small inflections of data that are otherwise hidden by small, experimental testing, small scale experimental testing. However, there is this economic barrier that exists in order to do large scale randomized controlled trials. Um, typically, you're not going to get a randomized controlled trial on anything without tens of millions of dollars, right? And then you look at another control of institutional science, which is the funding, which many of the institutions I previously mentioned are behind much of the funding to universities and things like that, where these tests could be conducted. But the, the financial barrier exists in the sense that it's also about having that grant-driven science is also market-driven science, meaning are we going to put up tens of millions of dollars for a large scale randomized controlled trial if there aren't billions of dollars to be made from the results? 
And so these old repurposed drugs, which no longer have valid patents on them or anything, there's, there aren't billions of dollars to be made there. Whereas experimental drugs, and especially because we're considered in a state of emergency. So um, uh, drugs authorized for emergency use can now be put out and made and a huge amount of money can be made off of these things because there's new patents in place. It's going to, because they're new drugs, the patents will last for many years and things like that. So you literally have these elements of the institution, the, the grant driven market based science, the economic barriers of randomized controlled trials. And even the, the, again, another quote unquote gold standard of the institutions of science is the peer review system, which is getting your research or your studies published in a scientific journal of some kind or a journal of medicine. And again, this could be a good thing. However, it can also be used to silence people who are doing the kinds of studies that perhaps the editors of these journals or the co your colleagues within that field do not want to put, don't have a vested interest in seeing it actually materialize within the market of science. Brandon, doesn't it also add for certain types of studies to come up as misinformation? You know, I, I'm, I'm thinking of what's his name, James Lindsay or something, and all the the BS studies they had published, claiming they right. did research and 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 still got it published in what seven out of nine or something, right? Uh, publishers they went through. I'm looking at not only is it a way to res restrict information, but it's also a way to uh, include or to support or promote disinformation. Right. It can be used to, quote unquote, game the system. Right. Um, especially if it is. And again, we're seeing and where we're going in this conversation is that there's clearly now narrative driven science. And in this, the narrative that's held by these the priesthood of the of this religion drive not only the economic factors, but also the factors of publishing. So for instance, in the case that you, that you brought up, the, the studies that they put out, even though they were bullshit studies, they supported a narrative that is being forwarded. And so that's why they were accepted and published in these various journals, because the editors of these journals saw them as supporting the narrative that their ideology supports. So it's, you know, narrative driven science, ideological driven science. And that's not science. When a narrative or an ideology is driving the science, it's not the scientific method that drives the science. Right. And so that's dangerous. That, that will, that, that's, what we're talking about, that's the, that is the death of science itself. Science is a method because now it's not the, the method itself and the conclusions that are, that are, that manifest from 
employing the method are no longer valued as much as institutional ideological science, right? So that this is this is a huge barrier for for science as a method is that you have not only these institutions, these agencies, these organizations that fund science, and they're only willing to fund science through, you know, from a, from a perspective of what's mar market, what's marketable, right? And at the same time, not willing to fund anything that may hinder their marketable products that they already have in place. So for instance, there's been several scientific studies that are, when you employ the scientific method, these are clearly highly effective treatments for the pandemic, right? Like the ivermectin studies. And because Merck, the company that actually initially produced ivermectin and had at one point the patent on it now they you know the patent's no longer any good because it's a very old uh uh medicine at this point they actually came out and said nope it's no good for that right and they basically took that took away the possibility and again not not through employing the scientific method did they make this conclusion of it not being a a, a an effective treatment but if you look at what Merck is up to because not only are they partnered with Johnson and Johnson on the J&J &J vaccine but they also have emergency use authorization for upcoming drugs that they will be able to make a shitload of money from whereas they really can't make any money off of ivermectin because anyone can make it any lab can make ivermectin. They no longer have the patent on it. So it's and, actually and it, in right? their market, it's actually in their market interests to deny its effectiveness. And you can't, in reality, effective uh, or, or uh, emergency use authorization can only be employed when there is no existing treatment. Especially if it's a if there's a low risk existing treatment from a repurposed drug, you can't get emergency use authorization. So Merck, in their own monetary interests, would have to come out and say, nope, that's not effective. Again, not citing any study, because there's a multitude of studies that show it's highly effective. Merck's not coming out and saying, well, we did a study and it's, and it's not effective. And here's the data, here's the protocols under which we, we conducted our experiments. No, 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 no. They don't come out with any of that. They just make an assertion that in, is in no way or, or an assessment that is in no way grounded by any facts. They have no actual science behind their statement. They're just making a statement. And, it's, and really, it is in their monetary interest to make that statement. So even pharmaceuticals and pharmaceutical companies are part of this institution of science. And so 
now let's get into the more insidious elements of how this is how this is affecting science on a much broader scale because you have many people out there again you don't have to be a quote unquote science to employ the scientific method but how do you get many people you know whether they're phd's md's there are many people out there a multitude who understand the scientific method, who understand how to collect data on their own uh, treatments of patients. You know, you have people on the front line. And what, you're, what you see is this phenomenon of, what would I call it, uh, conformity, okay? And you have a manufactured consent being created by the institutions. So, for instance, you have, you know, again, the, the high priests of science coming out and saying things like, oh, the science is settled. It just makes sense. Wear the mask, right? And they just say these things. There is no science backing any of it up. However, there is a tendency by people to conform to this manufactured consent, right? And so this conformity happens because people have this tendency within them to be accepted, right? We have an emotional tendency. It's within our, many people's personality to be accepted, to be liked, you know, and things like that. So there is a, in fact, they've done experiments on conformity. And one of the most interesting ones was done in, I want to say the 50s the early 50s, late 50s, early 60s, um, called the, the Ash Conformity Experiment by Solomon Ash. And in this experiment, they basically had a gr an entire room full of people, right? And what they were doing was many of the people in this room were what you would call confederates, meaning they were in on it. They already knew what to, what to do in order to see how other people reacted when presented with how other people saw or thought about something. So for instance, they were using like uh, these charts or, or these uh, graphic images of like a line in one box and then three different lines in another box. And the question is, okay, the line in box A is the same as line number or is the same size as line A, line B or line C in the second box, right? And even and what they would do is like they would have a group of the people make an obvious uh, false statement about which one it most resembled. And the other people who weren't in on the experiment would go along with this. Okay. And this was actually done in a, in a high percentage of people, even though it was observably false, people were more willing to go along with the false information. Okay. So this was, they were basically testing in this experiment people's tendency to conform to a group. And so this, and, and again, this, this has been proven out in not only in, per, in personality tests and in uh, cognitive tests of various kinds, especially group tests like this, but it's, it, it's a tendency that we know that we've spoke of in previous discussions of people's need to be accepted. Right. 
And so this need to be accepted will have you conform. And this is what we're experiencing in science now where they're saying they put out, they, they manufacture a, a, some kind of consent, right? They say something like, well, the science is settled on this. And that has a tendency to have people who are well aware of how the scientific method works, but will go along and conform with things that are actually a contradiction to facts, to observable reality. Because of our tendency to our need to be accepted, our, our need to be liked and things like that. So you see a, a, a vast majority of the quote unquote scientific community, the quote unquote medical community going along with these, this manufactured consent by the institutions in order to conform with and be accepted by their peers because they're being told that this is settled, that this is what's so. And, that, and so they just go along with it, even if they observe a different reality, just like in the ASH conformity experiments. What do you mean by manufactured consent? They come out and say things like, oh, yeah, all, all, all medical professionals or all experts, right? Now, that's the word they like to use, right? There are these public health experts, right? And there are these various experts within various fields of science that are the, really, they're bureaucrats. They're people who work for these various institutions and agencies. And they come out, and not only do they, they, like, I mean, you have people like Fauci who actually come out and say, I am the science. If you disagree with me, you disagree with science. Like, that's how egotistical he's become. And that's why I call him the high priest, because he is acting as a high priest. He's pushing doctrine and dogma. He's definitely not pushing scientific method. He's claiming that his opinions, his assertions are gospel that he is the ordained authority of truth, right? And so you have this, and when they come out, not only do they sit like, usually they're not going to say, well, because I say so. No, they come out and say something like, you're an idiot if you don't agree. And they don't say it in those, in those words, but they're basically saying like, look, it's clear, it's obvious, it's common sense. They're using these words, right? It just makes sense, right? That's, that, that's what he kept telling us about wearing masks. It just makes sense. That ain't fucking science. That ain't the scientific method. It just makes sense. To who? According to who? And so they, uh, that's the manufactured uh, consent. Manufactured consent. I'm not sure if you've heard of the, uh, the book by Noam Chomsky, but that's what I'm reminded of when I'm hearing you speaking about this. Um. I think that bureaucrats in general must be distinguished from scientists, even if they wear both hats, because right. I think there's a deeply held belief in the federal government, especially that the people can't handle the truth. So right. it's best for them to believe the noble lie. And if the noble lie is, you know, uh, you don't need to wear masks because there's a shortage of masks, then we'll tell them that. And I, I don't think they've ever really been challenged. I don't think they realize the internet is a thing yet. I hate to say it, but it seems <laughs> true to me. I think that they still live in that bureaucratic reality from 30 years ago, because most of them are ancient. 
Man, most of these guys are dinosaurs. They've been in government forever. They, they're right. used to a time. They grew up and became socialized into their professions in a time where they never were never questioned. So questioning them is itself presumptuous to them, and it's a result of them being so comfortable in their positions for years and years and years and years. And then here comes this Internet thing that allows people to challenge them. And I don't think they know how to – I don't know if – I think they know how to deal with that. Right. They, definitely. You're absolutely right. And that's, and, and that's why it's become so clear to us now because it's not like this, is, this isn't a new phenomenon, right? This, is, this phenomenon has been occurring for you know, decades at this point. But now we're at the point where we have access to tools and information and actual science and actual scientists doing actual science that allows us to see through the BS that we didn't necessarily have access to before. Yeah, that's it, true. So, so yeah. I think that there's a, techno, there's a technological uh, paradigm shift that has happened while these people have been you know, enjoying their tenure in government. And it's not that they don't know. I, I think that they're just, if you have a scientific mind, you're very disturbed by people who think, you know, that they're going to be magnetized uh, to the Jewish space lasers or whatever, right? There's all the crazy stuff out there and they see the crazy stuff and they say, gosh, we don't want anybody thinking their own thoughts about this. That's very dangerous. We must do their thinking for them. We must establish that we are the sole authority on this. And if we're wrong, it's still better than people believing in the crazy stuff. So I don't think they have a due respect for the critical thinker in the population. I don't think that they understand that that's even a possible thing that can happen. Um, and I, I think this needs to be brought to their attention because they, they may have noble intentions to get the worst of the crap out of there, the worst of the conspiracy theory. But what about those people who actually read the peer-reviewed journals and stuff? You know, what about us? What if we have doubts? Does that matter or not? I don't think they're they've satisfactorily answered that. No, and 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 again, yeah, I'm not, I'm not trying to necessarily cast a light on malfeasance. I'm not saying that, there, that there's necessarily malintent here. It's the institution itself, the way it's been structured over you know, the last more than a half century has lent itself to this kind of ineffectiveness, this kind of obstructiveness to, to new thought, new ideas, to actual science, um, I don't know if it, I'm not saying or claiming that it was intentional. I'm just saying that based on how these institutions operate and some of the methodologies of these institutions actually like peer review, these things have become methods of obstructing actual science, you know, and not necessarily from the mountain of an individual. You know, there's, um, there's I something I want to throw protection. on top. Say that again. I just wanted to say one last thing, and then I'll, and then I'll leave up some of the airwaves. I just I think that bureaucrats in general are career protectionists. So when the Lancet article came out, for example, at the very beginning of this, and made and gave and put a freeze upon the entire scientific community about whether they could even question the lab leak theory, for example, they set right. the tone, the world of science when they did that, and in that 
The reason why they did that was to, was to protect their careers and their reputations and their beliefs about the benefit of gain-of-function research, not because they wanted us to follow the science. Right. Right. Yeah. So there's and something there's, that... And there's actually a double-edged sword there also with the liability of anything you do outside of institutional science carries with it liability, right? So if I'm a medical doctor and I follow the NIH guidelines, I can't be held liable for anything. But if I'm a doctor who, from my own experience and knowledge, I'm like, you know what, I'm going to try these treatments because I think that they could be effective you're no longer covered by that umbrella of, of uh, limited liability, right? You now take on full liability for any uh, malpractice that you may engage in because of your, because you're not following the institutional science. Something important here. I want to just sprinkle on top of what you guys are talking about is the and, and for whatever reason you know I, I would look at education and other things but the people and as a is a generality the masses I, what i've noticed last year is they were all demanding some type of leadership there was this this aversion to taking personal responsibility and protecting themselves there was what should we do and even fauci at the beginning came out and was like Hey guys, uh, masks don't work. And everybody said, yeah, but we need something. And they demanded something. And, Matt, and then Fauci came out and said, well, masks can't hurt. <laughs> and <everybody laughs> started doing it. It was like you, they, everybody was begging for instruction, begging for some orchestrator, you know, maestro at the front of the orchestra to dictate the timing and whatever else was going to go on. And uh, like, to me, that's, one of the things that has us in the situation that allows somebody or, you know, a, the science to be a form of authority in people's eyes because they don't seek it or hold it or identify it within themselves. They're looking for it in an institution, in a political party, in an individual who's in a leadership position or what have you. And it just, it perpetuates this entire like, lack of taking responsibility and needing some type of daddy figure to come in and tell you what to do. Right. Yeah, I think it's a very dependent culture, a very incredulous culture. I, I think that the, the values that perhaps were somewhat older encouraged people to be critical thinkers and to question things that they were told. And I don't think that those values have been passed down as much to the, to the next generation, for example. Not, not, this isn't a damn kids on the lawn with their long hair and their loud music <laughs> sort of statement. It's, it's more of a, it's more of a, it, it just, the, the next generation does, just wants to know what to do, right? They're, 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 they're the fill in the blank, multiple choice generation. They're not the write the essay generation. So I well, noticed a lot of their lives. They've they've been taught yeah, to do that. That's like, right. Just no one ever the right answer is. Go do it. <laughs> the the finding that answer is much different that value system than the please just tell me what the right answer thing is. And I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with the, the old Greek stuff about logos, ethos, and pathos. But I see the logos is under assault right now, and I see us drowning in pathos and trusting the wrong ethos. Right. 
Yeah, definitely. And, and part of that is a large part of that is that cultural element of, like you said, not critically thinking we've been programmed from a very young age to look to authority, right? Unfortunately, we see bureaucrats as the highest authorities, as opposed to actual people doing actual science in the fields that we want to learn about and know about. And we're, and we're basically, we, we ignore some of the greatest scientific minds in favor of bureaucrats that are operating under some narrative. And typically that narrative being driven by monetary gain. So that's, that is damaging. That can destroy humanity. That kind of an, that kind of an approach to knowledge and understanding, right? Uh, government of course, nature gives people a monopoly or, a so, or, or at least causes them to think that they have a monopoly on authority. And right. science is not government. And I think that people are trying to look at government in a... In a you guys probably have, have heard of uh, the philosophy of scientism. And I think that right. that's what's operative here. It's, it's the idea that, that technocrats can make government a scientific process. Uh, so there's some assumptions kind of baked into that, one of which is the people will make stupid decisions unless we tell them what to do. There's, there's a certain authoritarianism kind of baked into scientism. And I think when people like Fauci are talking about trusting the science and then equating the science with themselves personally and their branches of government, uh, that's kind of what they actually believe. That, that's, I think, what we have to really challenge is what, what beliefs are causing people to uh, insinuate themselves as the very embodiment of science, which is ridiculous. Right, and that's actually a perfect segue into how rationality and objectivity itself have been brought into question to undermine the credibility of the scientific method by these totalitarian systems where scientism was born, neo-Marxism, etc. And we now have elements of critical theory, postmodernism, neo-Marxism, gaining a foothold in the science, the institutions of science, right? And so because these... The, these ideologies question rationality itself. They question reason. And through critical theories, they do it through such things as, well, lived experience. So this is taking away any merit of a, let's say, a scientific theory because, well, you don't know the lived experience of a Native American or a Black person, and therefore... You, your reasoning, your rationale has no value. Your science itself is an institution of white supremacy. This is, this is real. <laughs> People are really saying this now. And this can only be, this, this can only be validated through these, these, these false presumptions and presuppositions of these ideologies. 
namely neo-Marxism, critical theories, and postmodernism, where there is no objective reality, there is no objective truth, and lived experience is determined by, you know, pick it, you know, your sexual orientation or your race or whatever else. And therefore, these, the, the enlightenment and the reasoning and rationale and the scientific method born out of the enlightenment are tools of white supremacy as opposed to effective tools at getting us closer to the truth. And as silly as this sounds, as I say it, this is happening in real time. We are seeing this happen within the institutions of science where you have biologists claiming there are 72 genders or that gender is merely a social construct. Now, I guess we'll give credit where it's due. We'll, we'll say, okay, yes, there are definitely social constructs within our world because we, I mean, we are creatures of interpretation. So we, in our, our, our faculty of interpretation has us create these various social constructs, but to, to equate that to any social construct or any interpretation is as valid as any other is false on its face. It is, there, there is merit to ideas like, for instance, Newton and Einstein's approach to gravity. There is merit there. There is testable, factual elements of an objective reality that we can discern from their work in, around gravity. But if someone with a quote-unquote different lived experience than Einstein or Newton, because we know they were the devil in incarnate as white men that because someone of a different race says, well, no, 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 that's not at all how gravity works. It's because we're on a flat surface that's constantly being accelerated up into the sky. The earth is flat. It's a disc and it's being accelerated up into the sky. And that's what we experience as the phenomena of gravity. Does that have as much merit as Einstein's claims as Newton's claims? I would say no. In fact, it's patently ridiculous. But to say that because of a racial identity and a different quote-unquote lived experience that any and all ideas have, really, they've taken merit off the table. They're just as valid as any other. This is where these, where these neo-Marxist ideas are dangerous to not only science, but to our, really, our culture, our society, the very, the very, the very future of our existence hangs in the balance here of these ridiculous theories that are now embedding themselves into these institutions of science. You have... Uh, I mean, it's like, you know, we call this the death of science. It's also the death of merit of ideas, right? Where any and all ideas are equal, right? And, and you have them pushing this in various 
they're they're basically there they have what they call epistemic injustice right like these are real real phrases real terms that they're putting out in their papers uh, they have epistemic injustice epistemic oppression what they call standpoint epistemology um epistemic violence right and again this is this is trying to infuse critical theories into epistemology and the derivation of knowledge and to 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 degrade and to devalue the scientific method itself well this and is uh, why i brought up the logos ethos and pathos thing because logos you know if there's no objective truth there can't be any science Science isn't right. about how you feel, it's about what you can prove. And if you don't believe you can prove anything, well, then there is no science. So I right. think, so I think that you've brought up a lot of interesting points here with postmodernism in that, you know, if it's not grounded in objective truth, well, then what else matters besides that? Well, then it becomes about you know, how you feel and how they feel and how she feels and how they feel. And then it's just a contest of who can be the loudest with their feelings. Those are the people who are rising to the top. You know, love him or hate him, Trump got to the top because he affected people's feelings in a big way. Right. Okay. Not because he made the most sense or because he told the truth more, more often or because he had the most authority, but because he could either ex piss you off beyond all belief or, you know, invigorate your, your lost optimism about the greatness of America, whatever it happens to be. That he was all about feelings, 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 feelings. Everybody who wins today, everybody who gets ahead today, it's based on what can they conjure up in terms of feelings. And it was so a walking trigger. <laughs> you really was. I call him the human middle finger, actually. Um, so, but the people chose that because they feel ignored. And since they know that, that you know, it's not really a game of truth anymore. It's, it's a game of feelings. My feelings versus well, your feelings. The more victimized well, yeah, I am, the more class I not, have. Right, but let's not miss why feelings are in the foreground. And it's because of the... The, these all these ideologies from critical theory to neo marxism to postmodernism post is a full frontal assault on the notion of objective truth and once that right. is removed then it's simply a matter of who has the most force and postmodernism basically power. is everything exactly. it thinks about it's force about power so yeah. so if you think about fauci for example uh, if it's not about whether masks are scientific or not and it's more about force well then it could be easy to to characterize being on television 65 billion times as a form of force, correct? Or for, and a form of power. Because uh, that power. is their, their entire philosophies. All these philosophies, it's about power dynamics. Because they don't believe in an objective reality. They don't there believe in There you go. So whoever truth. has and the most airtime becomes... Right. Whoever has the most airtime wins. That's right. why Trump because he got the most right. airtime. And that's yeah, why and Fauci the, knows more than anyone else does about science, because he has the most airtime. That's what's right. wrong. It's a matter of the medium, the power medium that certain individuals are privileged with, although they would never like to admit that it's a privilege. Fauci has media privilege, if we're going to play this game. Right. Mm -hmm. He has the ability to expound upon his opinions in a way that uh, many other qualified scientists, including Nobel Prize winners, are unable to do. Right. 
Yeah, people much more qualified than him, <laughs> in fact. And, and this power dynamic is their central, <laughs> their central truth, even though they deny there being an objective truth. They, their truth, right, their, their th- truth. is that everything is about a power dynamic. And this is why they can write off. Truth. Right, right. They're, they can write off the scientific method because it comes out of what it really, I wouldn't, I don't necessarily agree that it comes out of Western culture or white people even. I mean, in reality, no, what about the pyramids that was long before the yeah, Western? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You could trace this back to ancient Persia, ancient Egypt. Like in reality, we don't have a, a monopoly on gaining knowledge, furthering science no. or anything else. It's clear that in past civilizations that were not European, that were not white, there was science. There was a science, the scientific method was present. Uh, and these the progressives the who have the, the root of their philosophy in the 1920s eugenics way of thinking, a lot of them, you know, th- th- they still believe that, gosh, you know, we shouldn't really expect black people to do objective thinking. Isn't that the exact same thing as was said a hundred years ago for different reasons that used to be called yeah. the epitome of racism. And now we're yeah. bringing it back and saying, well, you know, you, you shouldn't be expected to come up with the right answer because, you know, that would just be white supremacy. Well, yeah. What about the pyramids? That's, that's a one <laughs> phrase thing I always use. And it just, nobody ever has an answer for that. Right. Yeah. And in, in reality, when you look at the pyramids, not only are they engineering marvels, but they're mathematical marvels. You know, the fact that advanced mathematical concepts like phi and pi and all of these things were embedded in the structure itself shows that not only did these people have an advanced knowledge of mathematics and an advanced knowledge of engineering and architecture and everything else, this is in and of itself proof of science and far before the enlightenment, right? I mean, thousands of years before the European enlightenment. But you see, if the truth doesn't matter and history (laughs) doesn't matter, and it only matters who has the loudest voice and the most media clout, well, then they can just make true whatever they want to make true. So if, if, you know, nobody is grounded in any of these historical facts, if they just repeat all day long that objective thought is a white thing somehow, well, then... It might as well be true. And, and that's the way the postmodernists think, and that's why they have the flexibility to be completely irrational and win so many battles uh, and, and not have to be held accountable because their entire philosophy doesn't believe in truth. So it, right. it's just whatever the, the most popular thing is the truth. Right. It's, it's about that power dynamic. So it's how do we gain power, right? And we gain power by tearing down structures right by tearing down science by tearing down western culture we gain power right that's that's their approach and so yep. this and is the become- useful idiots on the street think they're they're performing social justice by scolding people about man spreading and other trivial items yeah exactly yeah but we can see that this 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 these insidious ideologies are not only impacting, you know, the things that are obvious and that people are turning up in droves now, and I'm, and I'm, I'm I, at some level, I'm really happy to see that there are people 
you know, challenging, you know, like the, the various critical race praxis in, in schools, like that's important to challenge that. And it's important to keep racism from manifesting within children. Um, however, this goes, the, the impact this is having is, is even more significant than making our children racist. It's destroying the very foundation of modern society and culture in that it has infected the science, the institutions of science, which are not the epitome or the, or the, the avatars of the method itself. They have become these, for lack of a better word, they've become these, these, these superstructures of, of, of a status quo of a narrative as opposed to inst institutions that are pushing forward human knowledge and human understanding via the scientific method, they are adhering to a narrative and pushing a narrative as opposed to furthering our knowledge and understanding. And this has become even mo more jeopardized by the infusion of these postmodern neo-Marxist critical theories that, that are clearly made their way into every facet of the scientific community as well. I think we have like, a I mean, coward culture. I think even we have, have a very cowardly culture. And we just don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to be that one scientist who, who gets ridiculed and called a tinfoil hat because we dared to question what is official. Right? right? But if we look back at all brave and noble acts, they all have something to do with defiance, in my view. Even the Einstein that you brought up, right? Newtonian, right. The Newtonian frame was the gospel for many years and for good reason. But there comes a time when the frames must be challenged. And I look at postmodernism as a recognition that philosophical materialism was not going to lead us to salvation. And, okay, well, now what do we do with that? Right. We, we already threw God in the can. So we're in the we're in the Nietzsche zone. Right. And the right. Nietzsche zone is, well, we're going to have to create our own values. So you create your own values and you create your own values. And she creates her own values. And who are you to tell them who their values are? And that's supposed to lead to some kind of individual salvation. And I just I, I don't think that it, it it can because it personalizes truth. Right. And. Uh, science does not personalize truth, and I think that's why we're on here griping about Fauci and, the, and his ilk is because they have personalized truth themselves and said, I am the science. Right. Absolutely. And the fact that like, it, it, this happened many years ago in you know, much of the work that I've done around philosophy, when people started using that phrase of my truth, and well, that's your truth, and this is my truth. Nothing drove me crazier than to hear people use those phrases because it, it destroys truth, you know, and I would break people down their language and say the no, credibility of objective truth without the responsibility of objective truth by using that right. phrase. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and so I saw it like at first it was an annoyance, you know, back in 2012, it was an annoyance. <laughs> um, 
2015, when it started get to get to the point like this is beyond annoyance now, this has gotten to the point of like dangerous. Like this is going to affect how people are in the world, how they're being in the world and how they're experiencing the world. Like this is going to have detrimental effects in the long run. And now in 2020, 2021, you see it manifest in every aspect of culture and society. And it's clearly detrimental in that, like you said, these, the high priest of science are now embodying these, these, uh, these personalized truths, I think, as you called them. And these personalized truths are in no way, shape or form near objective reality. Right. And so, and because, and when you abandon the pursuit of an objective truth or the pursuit of objective reality, there you go. That's, that's what I'm seeing occur here is by, by embodying that, those personal values, you're, 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 you're no longer pursuing that objective reality, that objective truth, which will, I mean, that's clearly going to head to air. You can't share a purpose anymore now. What is going to unify you if it's my volume versus your volume? Right. Yeah. And, and not, not only that, because, again, at the core of those ideologies is this power, right? It's a power dynamic. And they're asserting that the existing structures – that the majority of the population, the white people, that the existing structures, the white people, they do not have credible voices. They must be, in fact, they must be ignored because anything they do or say is about their power. So they've taken their ideology, projected it out on the world and say that anyone who perpetuates the idea of objective truth or the scientific method is perpetuating white supremacy. So we can't listen to white people. We can't, we can't follow these methods of science that have advanced humanity tremendously in the last several hundred years. That, or, I mean, it, it, these individuals it, it are the real Nazis right. because the real Nazis <laughs> were a left-wing movement as Dinesh D'Souza very clearly lays out. I think I agree with his analysis. I do too. Uh, but beyond that left-right BS, there's something very important here. That, namely, they are racial essentialists, meaning mm-hmm. that everything is boils down to race. Everything is rooted in race. Everything that we should be looking at in life has to do with racism. Every problem has originated in race. It's so racially obsessed that it is actually this it actually resembles some group from Europe in the 1930s and 40s I'm trying to remember yeah those guys <laughs> that's what you they know, believe they've just changed the skin tone and and the, and the, and they've changed the, the 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 method of blame but the same philosophy is operative there namely we are superior to anyone who thinks or anyone who looks like this. Right. I've specifically been told by somebody 
I've specifically been told by somebody in person, a friend of mine, who's like a deep advocate for, for what we're talking about here. They told me that you can't even see the problem unless you look at it through this, this new racist lens. To me, I was like, you just told me that it doesn't exist unless I adopt your, your worldview. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's exactly it. It's really, it's even more insidious than even the Nazi approach because it's not merely an attack on a people because of their color or anything else. It's an attack on thinking. It's an attack on if you do not share my ideology. And the, the ideology and, and, is subject to skin color, and that is false. Right, right. But it's also based in, like, they, they have the, the Kafka traps in there that, well, if you deny it, right, if you deny your privilege or you deny your uh, white supremacy, you know, well, then that's, that's, that's proof that you're a white supremacist and a racist. If you deny your bigot, if you says, deny your racist, that's proof the that you're a racist. The dogma says no matter what you do, you are a white supremacist by virtue of right. being white, if you are, in fact, white. So the thing is, if you argue, that's proof. And if you don't argue, that's proof. So right. what are you going to do if you're dealing with a thing that does not have to do with logic? And it doesn't have to do with logic. It has to do with it focus. Doesn't. That's what postmodernism is about, is focus. What are we focusing on? Well, what do they focus on more than anything else? Race. And why do they do right. that? Because they see it as a means to achieve political ends, being Marxists. Okay, so what they are really doing is employing race as a mechanism, as a power mechanism, the injustices right. of the past, they are utilizing them and weaponizing them to achieve their political ends. And I think, you know, the, the rapper Tom McDonald makes a great point on this. He says, Black Lives Matter once every four years. And so it's not even the thing it claims to be. It's right. just using people to achieve its political ends. Oh, and absolutely. I, I think we, like I think we have power. to realize that, 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 that you know, the, the, the useful idiots who parrot this stuff are not the people creating that reality. It's the people creating that reality that we need to take a look at. Yeah. 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 The useful idiots have fallen for the, the veneer, right? The veneer of the false virtues. The false virtues are, well, I'm, I believe in equality. I believe people should be treated equally. I, you know, these are, these are valid concerns and these are virtuous ways of thinking about people and justice and things like that. However, <laughs> the ideology itself does not in any way embody those virtues, right? You right. call and it and you even see it because it doesn't and, believe there's racism. an objective standard by which to value anything. So right. it's just a matter of the of force and, and which direction it is pointing in. What what is the force focused on? Um, it was a very good since I, I'm not sure if the race was supposed to be the 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 the, the focus here of this, but I'll just say one last thing about it. There is a um, there's a black acquaintance I have who made a point to me that I will never forget. He said they don't need white supremacy anymore. They done made off with the cash, um, and he. He said, you know why they're making such a huge deal out of the white thing now? It's because they need a buffer class, right? If, if I'm Joe Blue Collar working in a factory in perfect peace and harmony with my black brothers, and then suddenly we have this 
animus between us that was never there before. And it's not because of anything we did or said to one another, but just because the culture is changing above us. Right. What is causing that? And, and can we address that? Because have you, I'm sure you probably uh, heard of Douglas Murray and his take on this whole thing, the madness okay. of crowd. So, oh, yeah. so I think his most insightful point from that book was the postmodernists, because they don't believe in objective truth, they're forced to, to, to enact a contradiction perpetually, namely, you can't understand me and you must understand me. And that cannot be done. The double bind, the double bind, as uh, Alan Watts would say. I like Alan Watts as well. Yeah. Love that dude. Yeah. So, and, and so in fact, yes, it is a double bind. So let's bring it back around to science because like, I, I like to always bring the conversation to, okay, so what can we do? What can we do? How do we discern? in this world, knowing that we have these institutions that are actually obfuscating knowledge, how do we discern? What do you guys think? How do we discern truths? How do we discern- modernism on its head. Here's how. Why should Dr. Fauci, one man in science, have so much influence? That's not equal, is it? No, absolutely not. Shouldn't we hear so, from everyone in science? So, Wouldn't that be so, more democratic? Right. So in, in answering my own question from your commentary, we shouldn't listen to one person. <laughs> we, through our own faculties of critical thinking, should actually actively look for contradicting voices because that's science <laughs> science from their vantage point so i'm suggesting to come at it from their vantage point which is equity equality right don't those things matter so much to these postmodern warriors no. well fine you're never going to convince them that there is a hierarchy of values or any of these old things you're they're not going to believe it they're not going to understand it they're not even going to know how to approach it so if you frame it equity and say is it fair that fauci gets 97 percent of the airtime that doesn't seem very equal. And then suddenly they're presented with a problem they cannot solve. And I think that as soon as they have to start thinking, they start backing down. Right. Well, that's assuming they're going to think. Um, I think a, a lot down. of frame it in their values, they have no other choice just, but to at least try. Well, they'll just throw up another dialectic, you know, and... Mm -hmm. <laughs> Linguistic and then, fuckery. Exactly. Linguistic fuckery ensues because they just throw up a new dialectic and there, again, there is no logic or reason, you know, to presuppose that they will actually take a, a critical thinking approach to anything. I don't know if we can assume that. So I guess my real question is those who have <laughs> taken on thinking for themselves, how do they discern? within this world where the science as an institution is compromised, how do they discern usable, actionable knowledge, information, truths, facts? What do we do? How do we approach it? I, I have a very simple distinction that I use that I would like to share. And it goes back to that, um, that quote that my dad sent me. 
mm-hmm. I don't know, a few weeks ago or something that I shared with you, Bryn. Um, basically, the big takeaway from the entire quote was that science, like, well, here, I'll just read it. It says, uh, the first principle of science in action is for free and open debate. Any theory or hypothesis must be open to criticism and discussion. And if that doesn't exist, like the quote's over, but in my own words now, if, if that doesn't exist, if the ability to discuss, to challenge, to criticize, to, to throw away and replace, whatever, if that doesn't exist, then it's not science. And it's Absolutely. a doctrine. It's an ideology. Right. It's a worldview that someone's trying to sell you on, or at least that's the way that I take it. And so if I see that, if someone's like, you know what, you, know, you just don't get it and they try to explain it away, and they're not open to the criticism, there is no progress to be made in that type of climate. It's take my doctrine or get out of my face. And right. And so I'm not so allowed that's to do with that. that. some far-left friends of mine because I like to talk to both sides and learn from both sides, hence the name Purple Pitchforks. <laughs> I've had a lot of success dealing with some pretty radical people on the left saying, so what do you think of Pope Fauci? <laughs> then they are wondering what I mean and that wondering is the beginning of inquiry in right. a way where if I came at them with some kind of logical argument they would not be receptive and so I think that's really what we're dealing with here is how can we make people receptive to reason well right. uh, you if can't. you're not dealing with reasonable people then you have to be unreasonable and use unreasonable tactics that might not occur to you in order to reach them and show them reason. So this would be a good example of it. So what do you think of Pope Fauci with a straight face? Right. Yeah. They don't, and, and, what, and that actually, what, uh, and hu- what, uh, humor, humor can also be effective. Um, and it, it, and just humor, though, the, the implication is that them. he is dictating by fiat and not by science. Right. So it's a powerful yeah. metaphor that can, it includes a lot of imagery and things that they may not have. See, that's that's not a logical thing. That's very much a priestcraft thing, you might say. Right. Well, it, and again, that's that's also opening up what we we've talked about in earlier discussions about the distinctions of the right brain and the left brain. Right. Those two different forms of consciousness: the spotlight consciousness versus the floodlight consciousness. And when you when you ask a question like that. It's opening up that right brain. It's uh, opening up that floodlight consciousness. That, that's where we get humor, where we understand context, right? Um, there's a lot, many aspects of our current culture and society try to drive us into strictly left brain thinking, right? Purely analytical, purely uh, objective in the, without context, Right. Um, and so by asking a question that, that requires you to get out of, outside of identifying a single element of something. So when you say something like Pope Fauci, that's poetic in a sense. It's going to open up that larger consciousness for people. Yeah. And definitely, definitely an effective way, way of approaching like to deal with people who are indoctrinated. Because yeah. they, unless they have a new image in their mind, a new, uh, as you put it, a new poet, sort of, a new poetry a mechanism, right. it doesn't, it can't, really, you, can't, you can't fight irrationality with reason. If somebody, you know, if somebody is committed to not using reason, 
you have to not use reason to reach them. I know it sounds crazy, but it's worked for me. Now, there's some other things that we've talked about in previous episodes where we're not always dealing with mental stability in people. We're not always dealing with mental, mentally healthy people. Sometimes there are overly medicated, hormonally imbalanced you know, issues and even like bipolar and stuff that's going on with people. And so you have to be aware that like it, the game is not always about making people open up their minds or open up their eyes or open up their hearts to, to stuff, information or people or otherwise. Sometimes it's just acknowledging where someone's at and being okay with that. You're not going to change the world one idiot at a time because the world is always going to have idiots. <laughs> that makes sense. Amen. And let's bring it back around to the comment that you had made, Jinji, about your dad's commentary on science being challenged. So, Because I wanted to point out there that if there is a refusal to acknowledge challenge, then that is a, a, a point in which you can make a, a distinction and discern whether or not what you are seeing is, in fact, fact or science, that the scientific method is actually being employed there. Because if there is a rejection of challenge, then there is a, that is the rejection of the scientific method itself. So that is a, that is a point of discernment. For those of us who do take on critical thinking, who do want to know the the nature of objective reality, who do want to seek those deeper truths and understand what's happening, what's true, what's not, that recognizing when there is a rejection of challenge, right, or of questioning or refusal to, to accept being questioned, right, that it in, in no way is demonstrating or, or, or a, a representation of the, the scientific method itself, right? It is the What you're saying reminds me of a really cool video that I've seen. Do you guys know about uh, Academy of Ideas? Have you run across that thing on YouTube? No. Uh, Academy of the, Ideas yeah, has a little... Are they the ones who do the animations? Um, it's, it's more, he uses a lot of paintings and stuff in the background. Like oh, no, 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 I'm thinking of, uh, it's, uh, school, uh, what is it called? It's called a school life. I forget schoolhouse or something. No, I forget what it's called. School of life. I think is what you might be thinking of with the yellow backgrounds on a lot of them. Um, the bald guy does the narration, but at any rate, um, on Academy of ideas, there's this really cool, um, lecture on the Puritanists. You guys familiar with that? Uh-uh. Uh, Jordan Peterson talks a lot about it. He kind of refers to that as the Peter Pan concept, the boy who never grows up. When we think about people who can't be challenged, that's, that's an infantile psychological thing that's operative there. It's, no, I'm not going to listen to you, mom. Right? And so right. I think you're, that, that, that reason and scientific thought, I think there's some prerequisites involved there 
that may not be present, unfortunately, in a very large proportion of our population. And this has been noted by many social psychologists that there's a bunch of adults walking around, a bunch of kids walking around in adults' bodies, essentially. <laughs> people, yeah, people that never figured out that it was okay to be challenged, and now they're actively being taught that it's wrong to be challenged. So they're being infantilized even further by our existing society. And so I think that there's almost a sad sort of cutoff that took place. I'm almost 40. I don't know how old you guys are, but we, we were lauded for questioning and, and pursuing truth. That right. was a noble ideal. And there, there is no such thing being taught anymore. Right. You're being taught what to think, not how to think. And that if it feels bad when somebody talks to you, that's bad. Well, <laughs> that's what you teach kids, right? That's, I think what irritates people like us about snowflakes, so to speak, is that they, they have no skin, right? They have no thick skin. They, they can't just bounce back from things. It's because they don't understand that that is actually valuable to take criticism and go, huh, you know what? You might be right. Maybe I am a jerk. Right. Right. To do a little bit of introspection once in a while. I don't think they're equipped to do that. So as soon as they're challenged, it feels threatening. I don't think they have the psychological tools necessary to discern between threats and challenges. Right. And, and in reality, their, their worldview is that the world must change to accommodate them as opposed to the adaptiveness of humanity, right? At least in, in the way I grew up, I perceived that it was part of my being in this world, an important, an, an important thing for me to be able to do was to adapt to my community, adapt to challenges. And with the snowflake culture, what you have is the world around me offends me and therefore the world around me must change so that I don't feel offended. Right. So this it's a reversal to me. Yeah. And everyone exactly. has this narcissistic code where we all take 17 selfies of ourselves every day. And we all, <laughs> so we think the world must conform to me. And that is what a two year old thinks. Right. Yeah. No, that because it's not really an issue of reason even it's an issue of um maturity for lack of a better word i don't know if you guys have a better one than that um well i mean i think you nailed it with the, that self-centeredness that narcissism is i think not only a result of the upbringing of the younger generations but it's being nurtured and reinforced through social media. So now people curate an image of themselves through digital profiles, you know, their Facebook profile, their Twitter profile, their whatever. And this is, they, they put their self-worth and value in this curated image of themselves. And so it's, it's become a, they, it, it's like they're buying their own curated image and they're, they, because they've wrapped up their self-worth in these curated images, 
they've, they, they become self-obsessed. They become self-centered. They've become extreme. It's like, it, it's amplified. Fragility, I think. <laughs> Look at how much wide open they are too. Like I remember growing up with a pencil and a paper um, and, and being in my room alone and thinking my own thoughts without fear of anybody judging me. Now it's a world where not only can I not think my own thoughts because that's scary and I don't know what to do about that, but I need to post them for the world to see and examine. And unless every single person in the world agrees with what I'm saying and thinks it's nice, well, then I'm not very validated by that. So think of it. They've opened themselves up to the world. Think about how that is just a complete lack of boundaries. Everyone's life is public now. There's no right, boundaries. So these here's trolls the from Taiwan or whatever can now get in your head from across the planet of course there's these problems, and of course it messes up socialization. And I don't think these social media companies want us to understand that. But if you've ever read a book called uh, Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff out of Harvard, it becomes abundantly clear that these companies have intentionally done this for profit. Right. Yeah, and, and then also take into consideration that, that even their quote-unquote ideas aren't their own. They're posting, remember, it's a curated image. So they post what they think will get the most likes, what will get the most hearts, what will get the most smiley faces, because that's a form of validation because they've, they've embedded their self-worth in their postings. So they're uh, not even no being internal off. locus of control and internal locus of con uh, internal locus of control as a prerequisite of the scientific method. Right. You, you know, I think back to when I was on, say, Facebook a bunch and what I used to post and how I used to feel. And and I remember distinctly being like, you know what? This is something that is vastly important. I want to share it with everybody. And it gets like three or four likes. And then I'm like, <laughs> oh, oh, look at this. A cute little dog trying to like cover a fish with water. And I post that and it gets like 500 hearts and whatever other type of reactions. And exactly. it's not that I felt my own expression of what I wanted to share with the world wasn't valuable or wasn't you know, worth anything. But the next time I went to post, I was like, hmm, do I want to get 500 <laughs> hearts and hugs or do I want to get two likes? So I started putting my energy into more... Of what I was going to get more dog, engagement. Do, right. Dogs. You're looking for dogs and fish. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, let me just go find some bullshit that people are going to think is cute just because I like to get the feedback. And so it, I'm, exactly it's not like right. I'm curating so, myself, but I'm literally fishing for attention is all that I right. ended up doing on this platform. That is the, that so is now, the We have ended up amplifying the lowest common denominator in society, right? Oh, here's yes. a dude falling off a skateboard, bro. Check it out. 80 million views, right? So now <laughs> we, we've created idiocracy. We're actively creating idiocracy right now. So yep. I I watched it's it the last only night way just to remind me. <laughs> what do you know? Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, yeah, that's not 500 years. That's like five years away. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So it can be very discouraging, but that's it. It's like the social media companies have realized that they have elevated the lowest common denominator, which namely, believe it or not, like in surveillance capitalism, they know anger is engaging. 
So not only have they 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 put the cat videos, the cute cat videos in her face, which are relatively innocuous developments, right? I like cat videos. I'm not sure about you guys, but <laughs> they have elevated controversy in every area of life. Now knitting is a political statement. And why is that? Why have they distorted our lives to where we can't find a place to go for refuge anymore? They have invaded our every space and made it a controversy because it makes them money. Right. So people are overwhelmed with feeling persecuted and feeling controversial and feeling like there's no safe space to go. Well, in the mental real estate of some people who are a little bit younger, there's nothing but this stuff. There's nothing but Trump is an a-hole. There's nothing but Fauci, everything Fauci says is correct. Because by virtue of their social media influence, they are able to determine the truths for these people who cannot do their own thinking. And the only thing they're looking to do is say, see, I agree with Dr. Fauci. That's, that's trending, right? Uh, yeah, you know, people will like me if, I, if I'm not controversial. You know, so, so they're trying, social media companies right now are trying to rein that back in because they realize they, they effed up society pretty much. They really have. And yeah, they monetized it. That's all they did. They did. They monetized it, but, but they amplified the messages of the worst actors to make more money. Okay. So they did it on purpose. They knew what they were doing. And now they're like, oh crap. Well, uh, people won't have any faith in the experts anymore. So we have to amplify their messages so far and above everybody else's. They're, they're overcorrecting for what they didn't manage for the last 10 years is what I'm saying. You know, I also realized that not only was I fishing for attention, but I was avoiding criticism too. Like I'll, I'll never forget, I posted something that was, you know, edgy, kind of offensive, whatever. Got a handful of likes for it. Then I posted some random thing that was like, hey, if we blow up the perspective of vaccines, look at how the de you know the the descending numbers of whatever, you know, polio or something was happening over a hundred years, and look where the vaccines came in. And I just posted that and I my wall lit up with like anti-vaxxer bullet holes and i was like guys i'm not saying i believe this i'm not promoting like saying that you know you should believe this i'm just saying hmm interesting look at, let me post it over here data. look at this data that's totally neutral <laughs> and so i literally stopped posting shit like that because i didn't want to get into the argument with people that I had considered friends for it. decades. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I've uh, lost friends over one thing. They saw right. And then they just drop you from the platform. And then also from real life, like somehow they're connected intimately now. <laughs> well, they asked the next generation, they said, Hey, you know, is there any difference between real life and social media? And 50% of them said, no, I don't exist on social media anymore. <laughs> so who are these, who are these next generation kids so that I can keep my kids away from them? <laughs> exactly. They're already, they're already in it. Yeah. They're, they're, they're the ones who, who, who live life as if their social media profile is who they really are and put all their self worth in their profile and in their postings and things like that. Um, I find that interesting that there are that in an actual survey, is there a difference between the two that 50% said, no, that is real life. And again, 
we know it's curated. We know that a profile and your postings are curated. They're not authentic. They're not natural. They're not just you being you. They're you being an image of you. They're you representing. It's a representation. And it is a curated representation. Even Jinji, who's a guy who's got quite a bit of self-worth and, <laughs> and self-knowledge and consciously aware, was curating his posts based on how people reacted to them. That is not authenticity. That is curation. And so that, I mean, again, we may be veering out into the weeds here and getting I away from- I bring it back if you want to <laughs> take it back about science and Fauci again, because, because if that's the well, that's tonight's discussion, I can do it. I can do it, man. I can bring it all the way back. Check this out. Bring it, bring it back. All right. Give me just a second here. <laughs> I can all hear right. his hands warming. Yeah. yeah. All right. All right. Stretching out the neck. Um, the science has come up with a formula for the mob. So the people who believe they are the authority on science, the Fauci's and the rest, know how to call Mark Zuckerberg and say, you know what, would you be able to, say, socially engineer, perhaps stigmatize any doubt about this government policy we'd like to implement? And maybe Mark Zuckerberg says, yeah, I could probably do that. See how dangerous that is? See how yeah. anti-scientific that is? You know, it, but it is very scientific to say mobs are a part of life. They exist. So what they're doing is all of these kids are repeating what they've been told because they think that is what they need to get approval. But on, on a higher level, we have government officials who know this and who have – and it's been well documented – that government officials are using applied behavioral psychology in order to minimize policy disputes with the general populace. So do we really have a democracy that is interested in objective truth and science if the mob is being employed to, to squelch and destroy anybody who's a dissident or a critical thinker who has a different opinion? I'd love for you guys to uh, see if I weighed that or brought that back around. No, that's perfect. And that, I think, speaks exact, perfectly into the point that the institution, and here's what's interesting, in that scenario that you just spelled out, there is no liability because Mark Zuckerberg got to put it off on, well, I will only allow what the WHO dictates as science to be to, to, to be propagated on this platform, right? And so again, that brings in the science as an institution through the WHO to confine thinking, to confine ideas to a doctrine, to a dogma. Again, we're back to the religion, the high priests. The WHO is a church, right? And the bureaucrats of the WHO are priests, and they have a very they, they are not employing the scientific method over there. These people, these aren't people who do science, right? These are people who issue doctrine, who issue dogma. And now and they are using the sheep to police the ranks. Right. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it is the mob. The mob has become a a functional tool of this, this, uh, this obfuscation of truth, this perpetuation of doctrine, the mob becomes your, your facilitators, really. Ultimate force, really. If, if you can cause people to believe things and take actions without their knowledge, which Facebook has bragged about being able to do, by the way, if they can literally get into your subconscious, create emotions you didn't know you had, cause you to take actions you didn't plan to take, well, then we're not dealing with a democratic situation here. What we're dealing with is a technocratic fascist situation. Right. And, and all the while, we all think it's our own free will and, and uh, uh, opinions, <laughs> right? That, they, they, that these are opinions that are our own. And that this is, and that this is the result All the of better some if sort we of believe that. that yeah, exactly. Yeah, and because you know, they're not, it's not a book it's about not the future. Forced. We're there, man. Yeah, it's not being forced on anyone. It's just trickling out, and it, there is this element of self-policing, right? That occurs on all these platforms, not just Facebook. You see it on Twitter. You see it on YouTube. You see this these mechanisms of control, which are really the mob itself under the influence of the science as an institution, as opposed to critical thinking and the scientific method. And so they've become the implements of, and this brings it all the way back to the neo-Marxist, the postmodernists. It is all about these power dynamics and we've empowered the mob to be to become the arbiters of truth of our truth as we see it we are wealthy yeah. and we more than you because we went to harvard so of- you know we should be ruling society from a centralized location and uh if anyone wants to question us we'll just send the mob after them of of our of our democracy they always say it they, they give it right away this is a threat to our democracy citation needed Whose democracy? <laughs> Whose democracy are you exactly talking about? Right. O- ours? And exactly right. And, and if you'll notice, um, I'm not going to make this po- political per se, but you know, Trump came along and threatened the whole thing because he basically said the quiet part out loud and they didn't like that. Forget Republican and Democrat, forget policy. He himself represented the middle finger that said, hey, guess what? Maybe the people have a say here. We're pissed off. We know you're messing with us, and we're going to send this human middle finger to Washington to straighten you out. They didn't like that. So, Did you notice it wasn't America while, while Trump was in office? And then America's back now that Joe Biden is in there because he's the crony lifetime candidate, right? He's, he's the guy who spent his life in the swamp, and the swamp doesn't want to feel threatened, okay? No matter what party they're from. And so you're right. When they say it's our America, they're not ta- they're not including the people in that hour. They are they are the eye on the pyramid, and the rest of us must deal with the mob. Yeah, and actually, to bring it back around to, uh, we had discussed earlier about how some of these additional methods of science, as institutional science, like the peer review process, which in and of itself isn't bad or negative, but let me read you the, the purpose, right, of peer review. The process is designed to prevent dissemination 
of irrelevant findings. Uh, side note from me, irrelevant according to who. Um, unwarranted claims. Again, unwarranted according to who. Unacceptable. Uh, this is my favorite. Unacceptable interpretations according to who. And <laughs> personal views. It relies on colleagues that review one another's work and make an informed decision about whether it is legitimate and adds to the large dialogue or findings in the field. And you have to also take into consideration that it's also the editors of the journals, because even if the editors of the journals send out the peer review and it comes back, if the editors of the journals don't agree with the narrative or with this particular science that may contradict with the narrative, they don't, they, they don't have to publish it. And then you also have to take into consideration that the, the, the confidentiality of the quote-unquote peers you send this out to, there may be agendas there. You know, your paper may be sent out to a competitor, <laughs> someone who's competing against you in this field of science. And so they may just sit on it or they may just send back an, some kind of a negative review or pick it apart in some way, shape or form that prevents it from getting published. So these have become, even though in their pure form and in, in their probably their original intention was positive, these have become additional tools of control and, and in a sense are also a, a way of, of facilitating power dynamics and control through the quote-unquote mob, if you will. Can we talk about what being published really does? Like, it, it, it's not just, ooh, people get to read your work. It, it, there's a lot more to it than that, right? Well, I, I, in a, that's basically, it's, yeah, it's not, be, it's beyond, its value is beyond people being able to read it. The value is that it's been, it, it's, it adds credibility and legitimacy to it. But it doesn't mean that if you're not published, that your scientific studies are not valuable or not credible or not, you know, uh, factual, right? That's being published does not necessarily mean any of those things, but being published is now, oh, well, now this study is peer reviewed. That adds an air of legitimacy. Yeah, exactly. It, it's, but it's, Again, it, it's not, it, it is not part of the scientific method, right? That is, there is no, oh, and then make sure you get peer-reviewed and published. That's not part of the scientific method. In fact, <laughs> uh, Galileo did not have peer review and publication, right? Uh, neither did Newton, neither did Einstein. In fact, we don't even have, I don't think peer review appeared in our culture until like the 60s. We did a lot of science before the 60s. Yeah, exactly. No, I actually looked up the definition of science just to kind of be on clear. And I, I, I end up doing this at least once, once a call. But it says the intellectual and practical activity encompassing the uh, systematic, sorry, systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation and experiment. Nowhere in there does it say to come to conclusions. <laughs> no, and, and in fact, even when, when you come to quote unquote conclusions in science, it is not seen as truth, right? 
it's why it's a method. It's a circular method that you, there is always a question. There is always an observation that comes next. So you may come to a quote unquote conclusion, but the conclusion is that, hey, our, our experimentation lined up with our predictions and hypothesis or the data from our experimentation lines up with the predictions and our hypothesis. And that that's the, that's where we're at, so to speak. That's, that's really, that's the conclusion. So here's where we're at. It doesn't mean that we've, we've, we're at the end. <laughs> it doesn't mean, oh, okay, done, figured out the universe. You know, that's not, that's not science. There is always the capacity to question and the and always actually, challenge. They actually go through the process here too. It says the, uh, the process of the scientific method is five steps. You have the formulation of a question, you have a hypothesis, you have a prediction, you have a testing and analysis. And then you go back to, uh, what is it like re, I just lost it. Yeah, I've, I've, I've seen it. I've seen, I've, getting seen better. it. I've, I've seen the scientific method in, in oh, refine five, the hypothesis. six steps, seven <laughs> steps, and always, it's basically the same form. But I've seen it said a hundred different ways. Like, you know, really what's the distinction? Like in that method you just read, there's a distinction between hypothesis and predictions. Well, I mean, your hypothesis is, it, it, it's, it's, it's less than a thesis, right? So <laughs> you are making a prediction. That is the nature of a hypothesis. So yep. it is like to make that distinction some people uh, uh, equate not only formulating question, but making an observation can be the starting point. Um, mm -hmm. But it's but really, it's, I have an yeah, idea. I'm going to try yeah. to prove it. And yeah. if I do prove it, cool. If I don't prove it, I need to refine. And either exactly. way, it goes back and it restructures your original thesis. Right. So think of how, where we're at censorship wise, we can't even ask questions. Right. Yeah, that's that that right there takes throws the scientific method out the door. It is no longer a factor. It is no longer functional. It is now we're dealing purely with the science as an institution. If you can't question, if you can't challenge, then there is no science. This is where it's both right. at all. useful it's a because he says, science, you know, right, science welcomes being wrong. That, in its purest form, it's prove me wrong. Oh, I'm wrong. Let's let's figure out how I'm wrong. Let's create something better. Let's take this theory and create a gestalt version of of the answer to my question. And that's just like Brandon was saying when it comes to peer review. I posted something in the chat. They're screaming unacceptable, right? It's just people who don't want their paradigm shifted or challenged, or their position, or their well, really their tenure or their grant money challenged uh we this is actually perfect whether you bring this up nick we got another question in the chat uh gordon says he's not in a position to ask on the call but he would like to hear some discussion as to since there are 200 plus sovereign nations why does it appear they are all in agreement when it comes to the pandemic as far as treatments mask use etc does fauci really have that much power 
What about countries considered to be enemies of the West, such as China and Russia, Iran, etc.? I would expect them to say, screw the U.S., we're doing our own thing. Yet it seems well, all it, countries are following yeah. the CDC and the U.S. policy. Uh, well, as, it's the WHO. Yeah, and, and for one, it's not monolithic. Um, and what I mean by that is there are countries applying these therapeutics, these therapeutic methods um, successfully <laughs> and dramatically cutting down infections and deaths and everything else. So it's not monolithic. Um, however, you do have these worldwide institutions like the WHO. And there are treaties that many of these countries have become in, in, involved in that, that obligate them to, let's say, quote unquote, guidelines put out by the WHO. Not to mention that in reality, the bureaucrats, the priests are not the power. Meaning like it, you, it's about following the money, right? There, there is money behind policy. There is money behind the pharmaceuticals. There's money to be made in the pharmaceuticals. There's money behind the bureaucrats. And so this, the, wherever this money comes from, whether it be from a single source or a, a loosely knit group, um, it can be applied worldwide. And there are already mechanisms to to forward, like in this in this scenario, if we're talking about health-based science, where institutions like the WHO are in some in some ways ha are dictating, just like they dictate here, policy. They're dictating policy in other countries as well. However, there it is not monolithic, and we are seeing many different countries that are implementing various therapies and stuff here that have been, it's been made very difficult to implement those same therapies here. So it's right. not a monolithic thing. It's not, it's not working the same way everywhere. And in, and in as much as each state is its own country in the United States, um, they have their own policies. I mean, I know that, uh, places like Georgia and Texas, um, and what was it? North Dakota, um, and Florida, they've, implemented their own takes on something that an, an unelected bureaucrat or somebody on the payroll of the indirectly or directly of the WHO has implemented or said it should be, um, they resist or they change it, you know, based because, you know, the constituency quote unquote, um, decides that that, that isn't for them. I mean, in right. Georgia, doesn't have they they ended their mask mandate pretty early and right so that yeah, means caveman thinking yeah but but you also have to take into consideration that like let's if we take just into account like mask mandate like that's that isn't that can be implemented at the state level but you have to that but that's not something that is implemented through a medical professional right now things that are implemented or manifest through medical professionals like MDs, there is a national, in, there's institute, there are national institutional structures in place that bind many of, of the medical professionals. So like from the standpoint of, of, of national 
institutions. You have like the NIH, NSF, the AMA, the FDA, right? So there are there are many national controls that limit and restrict medical professionals. And 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 I spoke earlier about like the 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 liability, the limited liability that you get. If I just follow NIH, if I'm a medical doctor and I follow NIH guidelines, I cannot be held liable for anything that goes wrong. Okay, the patient dies, not my fault. I followed NIH guidelines. However, if I go off script and I say, you know what, I'm going to try these therapies as opposed to what the NIH is telling me to do, well, now you're no longer covered under the umbrella of limited liability and you can now be held uh, you know, uh, held liable and, and, and face malpractice for just going outside what these national institutions are dictating. Given the comorbidities, given the comorbidities that we looked at through CDC last year, I'm curious mm -hmm. to, if anybody that was under that coverage that stepped out to do therapies, you know, had a patient that was being treated for COVID die in a motorcycle accident that then they got lost their license to practice because they weren't under the coverage anymore. You, have you heard of anything like that happening? <laughs> Died in a motorcycle? Oh, okay, I, I'm not following you. <laughs> okay, let me, let me break it down. Basically, the, the motorcycle thing was an analogy to some of the comorbidities the CDC reported. This person died of a motorcycle accident and COVID, yeah. and it okay. was chalked hold up on, as a COVID. Hold on. So I'm not hold talking on. about That's, that. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Make a distinction here. That's not a comorbidity. You died of a motorcycle accident. Comorbidities are like obesity. They contribute to your death of COVID. You cannot claim that, that the motorcycle accident was merely a contribution. It was the cause of your death. Okay? Right. <laughs> right. But what Gingy's talking uh, about, Gingy's um, um, kind of Gingy's convoluting. <laughs> he's kind of he's kind of convoluted. There's a meme running around. Somebody uncovered somebody's death certificate, and the guy clearly died in a motorcycle accident. But the and it's terrible. It's it's you know dark humor. The the um the guy died in a motorcycle accident, but he had COVID at the time. So right. the death certificate listed his death his cause of death as COVID, even though you right. know he was a road rash. When they when they you know spatulated him off of the road, it, it was COVID, and that it, it became a meme for a while that you know m you know this guy died of you know this guy you know his parachute didn't deploy and he died of COVID, right? But yeah, specifically, and I'm and, talking about the CDC comorbidity report that they okay, released the last yeah, year. But the the comorbidities did not have to do with motorcycle accidents; they had to do That's with right. contributing factors. Heart conditions. Not all um, of them, dude. Some of them were no, like intentional no, and unintentional injury. No, 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 no. Like the gunshot wounds, the, the motorcycle accidents, those are not in that category of comorbidities. Those are morbidities. Those killed you. If you got shot, you died because you got shot. But if you had, if you were obese or had diabetes, they could say that that contributed. That's a comorbidity. Okay, I so, know that, but what I'm me, saying no, is in the report. No, it didn't. I don't think you read the report right. But here, this is what you're asking. Is if I were a doctor and I treated with therapies and somebody had diabetes and died and COVID and died, 
could I be held liable? You would have to prove malpractice, meaning are the therapies I use, can you prove that, that, that I was being negligent in the application of those therapies? That's what, you, that's what it comes down to. Right. Are you responsible for their death because you've stepped outside of the NIH guidelines? I, I just told you. I just answered that. <laughs> right. Well, that, that's the that's yeah. the question I was trying to ask. Right. Yeah. It's the yeah. same. It's the same as it's the same as a lawyer being disbarred because he he steps outside of the steps a little outside of the uh, accepted law form or pisses off the wrong judge. Um, and that's well, I, it's. It'd have to be beyond pissing off, but yeah, it's, it's negligence, right? It's that you're operating outside of how you are supposed to operate. So as a medical doctor, you have leeway in prescribing treatment for a patient, right? But if you do something stupid or negligent, like for instance, if you have a patient that's on a medication that, uh, that interacts negatively with another medication and can actually kill them if you combine the medications and you prescribe this medication and it kills them, you're negligent because as the physician, you should have known that, that the interaction of those drugs would have a detrimental effect on the patient. But that's the right. interaction of those drugs is what killed them, right? So if I treated them, what's that? Making an excellent point here. Bravo. I am? Keep it going. <laughs> I interrupted you to like ruin your train of thought to tell you that. No. Um, He's encouraging I, you. I'm so sorry. It's, 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 it's something I fear I'm going to forget if I, don't, if I don't plug this in immediately, and it's this. There's a legal doctrine about people being able to sue other nation states for culpability in these act of God things. I can't remember what the name of that is, but I, I had heard that recently it was challenged. So now China's pointing fingers at the United States. The United States is pointing fingers at China. And I feel like the re that one of the major contributors to why people can't be honest about their treatments and they can't take chances and use their own judgment is because nobody knows who's liable right now. Not even countries know right. who's liable right now so everybody's just doing the safest possible thing they can which is listen to the government right yeah because that you know for a fact you're covered <laughs> and you won't be held liable um and what you're finding is those physicians that are actually willing to step out of that narrative and to pursue other treatments it's because their conscience and their commitment to actually helping people outweighs the risk of being held liable for it. They really like, and again, I can't say this about all physicians. There are physicians who, yeah, they are heroes because they really, their, their bigger concern is people's well-being, right? They, it's like, okay, yeah, fine. I'll take liability, but I want this person to live. <laughs> like, like they they see that exactly. As an it's risk. it's yeah. the it's the assertion that the Hippocratic oath matters more than liability, and that is a thing that medicine has by and large forgotten. Right. 
Yeah, absolutely. Because there are those people out there. And wow, you have to applaud them because you're seeing that those people are the ones that get attacked. They get ravaged by the media, by the institutions, right? These people lose their livelihoods because they went out on a limb. Crucify said, you know him. I feel like I've yeah. heard this story before. <laughs> it's like that nigerian doctor last year who was talking about hydrochloroquine and she got lambasted in the news yeah and then it only took a year before the mainstream was like oh right you know now that now that you know we've gotten things back to quote-unquote normal hydrochloroquine might be and i don't know if you want to put this on youtube might be might be an effective treatment maybe i don't know Months later, you had Trump taking it. <laughs> exactly. And he got he got crucified too. Right, but you but there again, that's in the these like this isn't unknown. Like if you're in the field of medicine, you're seeing how people are treated when they choose of their own volition to go outside of these prescribed these doctrinal methods that are being set forth by WHO or NIH or anything else. And they intentionally say, Nope, I think this is the best way to go. And so they, they veer away from that acceptable narrative and these people are being, you know, they're being deplatformed. They're being, uh, the, and not only from the social media, but from the platform. yeah, they're, they're being deplatformed from their job. You know, they're, they're being, uh, their, their, their reputations are being attacked, right? These people are being made to look like bad people, evil people, wrong people, stupid people. So they're, they're, they're destroying these people. And to truth you and to the be, life are crucified. It's kind of a it's kind of a timeless thing, isn't it, guys? Yeah. You know. Yeah. It's what do you what, you know? I came to tell you to love one another. Don't you realize these people are dying? Like when I heard Pierre Corey's testimony in front of the Senate, which has been removed by Mark Zuckerberg, the fascist. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, I realized that that man, like there, there's an element of truth that come that is an impassioned delivery that can only come from pure authenticity. And I saw that in that man that day. And yeah. I said, this guy is believes what he is saying and he cares about people and he wants to, to help. And that sounds pretty familiar. Crucify him. What's right? his name? So yeah. uh, Dr. Pierre Corey. Uh, you'll see him sometimes on the Brett Weinstein's uh, well, Dark yeah, Horse podcast. Remember, you know? I, I, I posted that link a couple days ago, and I told you guys it got taken down from YouTube, but I posted the audio links for it. Oh, that's right. That's the same one. Yeah, yeah that's Pierre Corey and Brett yeah, Weinstein. Pierre Corey. It's like, what do you do with this story now? Stop telling the truth because they might crucify you, or do you decide to do it anyway? It's the ancient choice. And I think that these guys who are making this choice right now, they're the heroes of tomorrow. The villains of today yeah. are the heroes of tomorrow. That's what the Christian story was, and it's happening today. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. It's crazy that people are t- literally choosing between their own livelihood, families, and well-being, or doing their job to save another human's life. Like, yeah, I'm not going to go down that road. That's too much of a risk. I like my car, my house, my job, my family, my my norm 
not going to step out of the box. I'm comfortable here. They're selfish, and they take a look at that cross, and they say, that's not worth it, man. I, I think I'm just going to stick it out here in the Garden of Gethsemane where it's safe and dark and no one can see me, right? Golgotha, that looks painful. No thanks. <laughs> they've stigmatized telling the truth. They've made it a, they've made it heresy to tell the truth. And, 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 and it's like, this is nothing new. It just takes on new forms. And, and so I think what we're going to have to have more than anything else is just bravery. Just bravery yep. to say, you know what, you guys want to come after me, right? Go ahead and come after me. Like uh, what, whatever uh, Brett Weinstein's brother's name is, uh, um, Eric. I can't remember off the top of my Eric. head, but he's the big Eric. That's right. I remember a ten-minute video he did where he's like, "Yeah, well, uh, American Science Foundation or whatever, you guys want to come after me? You go ahead and come after me." I just, I, I think that. The, the whole Trump phenomenon was, was an indication that bravery, however foolhardy, was desperately needed in our society. Yeah. And we are, we, are, we are requiring vast amounts of that right now because there's so much cowardice and groupthink. And that's yeah. what we really have to contend with. You're going to have to put something on the line to tell the truth these days. It used to be easy. Right. Well, courageousness begets courageousness. And it's it's... It's infectious. And for instance, you know, Pierre, Corey, and the few that have had the courage to come out and speak, well, it's given others the courage to come out and speak. And so that number right. of, do. of people who are willing to come out and speak now is growing and growing. In fact, you guys have seen like the videos from, you know, back at the beginning of the pandemic, right? When businesses were being shut down and you have the <laughs> the health department or the police walk into a business and they start harassing the people there, right? And everyone's cowering. And then I, I, I can't think of where it was, but there's the one video where the guy says, you're trespassing. He's not even the business owner. He was just a guy there in the restaurant or the bar, whatever it was. He's all, you're trespassing. You're not welcome here. Leave. And him stepping up and being courageous in that moment when everyone else was cowering, all of a sudden the entire bar or restaurant, I can't remember what it was, started chanting, leave now or some something like that. Like, Yeah, it was they, like a Chili's or something. Yeah, yeah. It was like it completely shifted the entire energy of, the, of, that of everyone there in that business from cowering in fear of these police officers or uh, – county health workers, whatever they were, and everyone immediately stepped into that courage that that one man ignited by stepping it up and being courageous. That one man, had he not done that, they would have just sat there and cowered and eventually would have got shut down. And they would have all left had that one man not stood up, stood his ground, That's and right. told them to leave. That's that's the same story over and over and over and over again. It's the eternal story. You know, any movie worth watching involves some aspect of truth to power. Now, in our day, it's been we've had it so easy for so long that now it's like, oh no, to tell the truth is a revolutionary act once again <laughs> in our time. And we're gonna have to be the men and women who step up to the plate and do that thing. That's really the only thing there is operative here. We either hang together or hang separately, as, as Franklin would have said it, I believe. Yeah. All right.
Awesome. No, this was a great conversation. You guys have any other points to put on this before I wrap up the this part of the discussion and we go into after hours open discussion? <laughs> what was that, Genji? It's a pleasure to have met you guys. I <laughs> I came in a little bit late and uh, just kind of jumped in, and uh, I really appreciate running into some people who kind of get it. Some woke people, some woke people, bro. You know what I mean? We're so <laughs> don't woke, call bro. me. Don't call me woke. Don't call me woke. I do not. <laughs> don't don't just assume, like I'm don't talking to my you guys a couple of days ago, and a gal said, "Oh my God, you're like so woke," and I went. I think I understand you now. <laughs> take take that back. take that back. <laughs> I have to go uh, projectile vomit. Excuse me. I identify as previously woken. <laughs> I was woke I like, before it was cool. <laughs> I like to use proper tense. Is the only thing really. Well, it, it used to be reality. called enlightenment, and then it fell out of fashion. Well, yeah. I, I think it's funny. Hundred years ago, yeah. It, it to me, it's a funny word because it is past tense. So it means you're not awake, right? I'm woke. Yeah. So you in the past at one point were awake, <laughs> but not in this yeah. moment. Yeah. Not, now you're dreaming. I am in the past. <laughs> Give that some thought. Exactly. All righty. Well, like I said, I'm going to wrap this up. Thank you guys very much for the discussion. Um, it was amazing i got a lot of value out of this and i hope to speak to all of you again very soon have a good night